This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how are you, man? I am great. I took a couple days PTO. Slacker. Just randomly, you know, they said, please take days off. This is actually what I was asked. So I uh, picked a couple random days, took them off. It was glorious. Doing nothing was everything I hoped it could be. And then... uh I went into work. So, so yeah. It's what pretty, I heard when you said that they asked you to take days off was they just needed a vacation from Tom. You know what? That's very possible. <laughs> okay. Anybody, I would assume, including you, everybody at some point goes, okay, I need a couple days away from this meltdown. And uh, that's fair. I, I need a couple days for myself sometimes. I just, that's the hard part. It's been really good. The weather, I love this time of year for weather. It's every day is a little different. It's still a little cool. Sometimes it's raining. Sometimes it's not. It's still not super hot, which is the one weather I do not like. Other than that, everything's been good. How are things in your neck of the woods? Not too bad. We're uh, just doing what we do. The weather here is kind of the same. We're, you know, of course, being in the Midwest, we got those uh, NATO seasons. So we're, uh, you know, gearing up for all the tornado watches and tornado warnings and Severe weather outbreaks and all that good stuff that happens when heat and cold collide and uh, fun stuff. Yeah. So the part of the country I live in now, as opposed to when I live down there with you, is not really used to this many tornadoes. Like they've had a couple, but, you know, it's just not a big thing up here. And the other day, the tornado warning came out that pretty much was the entire southern half of my state. And I was like, wow, that is quite a tornado watch they have going on down here. Like, they just didn't know where to put it, so they just said put it everywhere. I don't know. Like, just, that's just what it seemed. Yeah, just like we'll just it happened. Cover this base here. So, yeah, the entire state of Ohio was under a tornado watch, it seemed like, the other day. But that was pretty funny. Because once you've been through so many, you just go, okay, you know, I, I know the drill. And then when you're watching everybody else that doesn't go around tornadoes all the time freak out, you're like, oh, yeah. That's what that looks like. Okay. Yeah, you're easy to spot so, the locals when they're the ones out on the porch looking at it going, huh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that rotation's pretty slow, Ma. I think we can uh, we can wait a little while. Yeah, you know, when when those guys are calling the weather, you know, spotters and be like, nah, this isn't going to be a good one. You, you can just stay home. That's when you know you live around a bunch of tornadoes. Versus here, if the wind blows over 15 miles an hour, they're like, oh, Lord. Batten down the hatches. It's a coming. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I don't even have a jacket on. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little different, but I'm, I'm still glad. So, we have a great episode, though. I am very excited to get this episode out and get people listening to it. Heck yeah. We, uh, I mean, I, th- I think we're going to be big time, Tom. I mean, not like Joe Rogan big time. But I mean, <laughs> no, so, we actually have a New York Times bestselling author on the show tonight, which is, I mean, that's pretty cool, I think. It's very cool and shocking. I'll be honest. When we were talking about biography and also I was like, she, she what? Yeah, I, I wasn't ready for New York Times bestselling author to be on our show. Yeah, so it is Teresa Brown. She's a registered nurse. And her New York Times bestselling book was called The Shift. But she had a new book out called Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient. And so it talks about how... Um, you know, she worked in oncology and then was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it's kind of talking about her journey through all of that. Um, it's it's very eye-opening, I think, for us. I know we've had several patients on Andy early on and then Christina with her battle with cancer. And so, I mean, I think it's always interesting and 
it's good for us to hear from the patient side of things. We have had several people that have been patients and they have, you know, formerly been in healthcare. But this is the first time I think we've had somebody that was in healthcare, got cancer, and then went back. And so we're we're still hearing when I was a patient versus when I'm taking care of the patient, because with Miss Brown, it's both. You know, yeah. she and and honestly, what a great lady. We had such a good conversation both on and off the air with her. I really hope everyone that listens to this takes a look at her book or buys it because she was just fantastic to speak with. So I am very excited to get my hands on her books and start reading. And I will say that I think and I'm, I'm going to spoil this for everybody, Tom. Tom <laughs> was super excited that we had a doctorate in English, PhD, and yeah. New York Times bestselling author say the word turd on the air. Yes. Uh, five questions <laughs> was just, Mwah. It, it was, it was beautiful. It was like, I was, I felt like I was a chef working with my other chef and we looked across and we just knew the soup was perfect. You know what I'm saying? I was like, this is it. This is the moment. This is our Gordon Ramsay. We serve this. Okay. The risotto is perfect. Get it out there. Like it hit. And uh, yeah, when she said, I have a PhD in English literature or whatever it was, I was like, well, boy, this is going to be an interesting conversation going. It wasn't English literature. It was just English. Correct? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So either way, like, this lady was not a person like if she used a word, I wouldn't be like, are you sure? No, clearly, if she said, Tom, you're being redunculous. I'm like, I didn't realize that was a real word, but clearly it, it is. She yeah. said it. It is now. Yeah. So, I mean, she could have just made up stuff the whole time. She could have been like, well, when I uh, was using a flugel binder on somebody, I'm like, I don't know what that is, but it's clearly a real thing. Like she could have just lied to us the whole time. So, well, hopefully she um, did. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she did it. But let's let let's get this wrapped up so the people can actually listen to the episode. If you're listening again, go look for her books. She's a fantastic person. And like I said, we don't record the off air stuff. Obviously, that's why it's off air. But I can tell you, she was just as cool and fun to talk to off the air, if not more so than she was on the air. What a great lady! I can't say enough. I was so happy to have her as a guest. Yeah, and you don't have to look far to look for her books. As a matter of fact, if you just look down in the show notes, it'll be right there. Really simple to find. So check out her books, check us out, and uh, to our interview with Teresa Brown. Tom, we have a great guest with us on this episode. We have Teresa Brown. She's a registered nurse. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Shift, and has been a frequent contributor to the New York Times. But we are here to talk to her about her new book, which is called Healing. When a nurse becomes a patient. Teresa, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm in Pittsburgh and it, it's actually warm for the first time in about a million years. So I'm really happy. <laughs> okay. Well, I have to jump ahead then. So if you're in Pittsburgh, are you a Penguins fan? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not really. No, don't be sorry. I'm a Blue Jackets fan. So I was going to oh, say. okay, great. We can be yeah. friends then. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So Ben's not as big into hockey, so he doesn't get that reference. But someday I'm hoping to bring him along and make him a Blue Jackets fan. So probably not, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Trace, I know in, as far as nursing, you have an oncology nurse background. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you kind of just fill us down on your background a little bit? Yeah. So I'm an uh, unusual nurse in that I got a PhD in English, which is not a requirement for nursing school, just to make that clear to people. Thank God. Um, <laughs> so I thought I wanted to be a professor like my dad. So I got a PhD and I taught for three years at, at Tufts University. And then I realized ah, this isn't really my dream job. So you know, after you've spent six years getting a PhD, that's a little bit hard to take. But so then I became a mom and it was really having my kids that opened me up to this whole different side of myself that wasn't about books and ideas, but was about people and love and joy and also being really tired. And, you know, because uh, my son was two and a half when my twin daughters were born. But basically, I found this part of myself and then thought, oh, how can I turn this into a job? And essentially a friend who's a nurse said, well, you know, you could be a nurse. And I just had never thought of it. And then I looked into it and I was sold. And then after getting my PhD, I said, I will never go back to school, not for anything. 
But literally a month later, I was taking chemistry in college. So I was hooked and became a nurse and got my degree at University of Pittsburgh and then worked in oncology and hospitals for five or six years and then did home hospice. And then I was teaching at University of Pittsburgh in their nursing program when the pandemic hit. And now I'm writing full time. How far did you get your bachelor's or doctorate in nursing? How far did you go in the nursing route? Yeah, in nursing, I stuck with the bachelor's. And that's actually so important to talk about. So thanks for asking, because when I went into nursing school, right away, I'm going to get a nurse practitioner degree. Actually, I wanted to be a midwife. That was my plan. I'm not going to be a bedside nurse. I'm not going to do that. And then once I got into nursing school and I found out more about that job, I thought, this is such an important job. And I've just fell in love with bedside nursing. And the fact that it doesn't get the respect that it deserves does not mean it's not worthy of respect, which I think we saw during the pandemic much better than ever before. There was coverage of nurses and how important nurses are to patients doing well. And people saw, oh, wow, it's actually nurses taking care of patients in all these COVID ICUs, not doctors who do their part, but the 24-7 coverage is nurses. And so I was a convert. You know, I really thought, nope, I'm going to go on. And I realized I don't want to. I want to stay in this job. Well, and I think that's a really, and I'm glad you made that point as well, because while both Ben and I have our nurse practitioners, I'll be honest, we talk about it pretty frequently. We still, I think if you go into nursing, you always have that bedside. Like we did make the transition. We are now providers, but I can't tell you how often I go, man, I just, I would do anything to start an IV right now. Like I just, <laughs> I, just I would do anything to be at bedside and do the work. And again, I don't want to give up what I do now. I love what I do now, but there is something about being bedside, getting your hands dirty, talking to the patients, having that team that is is a much different feel. I do have one other question though and I <laughs> Sure. So a lot of students when they go to nursing school are very young. I I was a little older myself. You know, I was in my 30s when I went back to nursing school. My question for you is though, was it how different was it going into it having a PhD? Like, did the teachers look at you? Did you dare them to critique any of your papers when you turned them in? Like, because I'll be real honest, ma'am. If I were you, I completely 100% would have. I'd be like, I dare you to APA me on this. Like, I dare you to try this. So how was that going through school, though, with a PhD, like to go back? You know, that's a good question. I was not like that. I think I was so focused on getting to the finish line. I just really had... uh Continuing the horse metaphor had blinders on <laughs> to <laughs> anything that wasn't about getting my degree. Although now that I think about it, that would have been a good idea. That BSN phase. Exactly. Like I, yes. Yeah. Yes. Of course. Um, but I think for me, it was just kind of weird because there were things that irritated other students that I totally understood, like why aren't our tests graded? I'm like, well, professors are very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I didn't think about that. So you became the liaison in the other direction. You became the, hey, maybe the teacher needs a break person. Yeah, but then if someone was a really bad lecturer or they weren't, weren't good at getting points across, the other students would be willing to cut them slack in a way that I wouldn't. Like, it's not that hard to make the lecture better than this, you know? So, yeah, so I was very demanding in terms of how I thought instruction should go and what could be better pedagogy. But the sort of other human aspects of teaching, I was more understanding of. But I I wanted to say too, that what you said about the bedside, because I I just did a book event in St. Louis. I was flying back yesterday and get the, are there any medical professionals on the plane? And so I got up, went to see this, you know, another person on the plane, woken up from a nap, non-responsive. And I sat down next to him and his pulse was great. He was breathing, just looking like he was having an absence seizure almost. Very puzzling. Anyway, then someone else came up. He said, oh, I'm an ED doc. And I thought, okay, good. (laughs) Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Traded places. 
But then we asked if there was anyone who had someone who could test the guy's blood sugar. And I helped the guy get the blood sugar and talked to the wife and patted her on the shoulder and conveyed messages from the doctor to the flight attendant. And I really felt so much like I was back in that space. And, you know, it wasn't about clinical care or anything like that, but just attending to people, trying to make things a little bit easier. And then I thought, yeah, that, that's what my book is about. It's about how we're not good at that and the system. And the, and the doctor was doing his stuff. And, but I, you know, he wasn't looking out for the wife or thinking about how are we going to get this blood sugar? Or at one point he said that they gave him a headset and he just said, well, they didn't hear a word I had. I said, I guess I wasn't using it right. And gave it back to me. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. No, yeah thanks, Doc. Right. Yeah, you could figure it out. So I'll just take care of this for you while we're at it. Yeah. Um, so I hear what you're saying because I'm I so much miss clinical work, but I hear what you're saying about there is something so privileged and wonderful about being at the bedside, whether it's in a hospital or on an airplane. And I'm sure Ben has had an experience like this. But I helped some of our LPNs. I work in an office now. We mostly have LPNs. Some of them are going through RN school. And mm. of course, you know, IVs and all this other stuff. So I said, oh, let me, we'll get some supplies. I'll teach you how to start an IV because that's what I did in the ER as well. I taught okay. people. And just like that 30 minutes of that time, it just brought back all the like, no, 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 they're going to be moving. You, you know, like you, right. you need to be, you need to be doing this. And all these girls are just looking at me and all of a sudden I was like, I had that flash, just like you said on the airplane, I had that flash of, oh yeah, I remember how much I like this. Like, this is the really cool part. So neat. Yeah. One of the other podcasts that we help produce is a podcast called Nurse Papa, and he's a pediatric oncology nurse. So he speaks very, very highly of oncology and how life-changing it is. And, we, and, of course, we tell him that you have to have angel wings in order to work as an oncology nurse because I don't think that either one of us could do it. So I'd like to hear some more about your experience working oncology. Yeah, I – loved that work. And my second book, The Shift, is about my work on a bone marrow transplant floor. And I loved that job and ended up having to leave it because the hospital system, I always say they liked me until they didn't. But so I, I had to leave that job, but I still miss it at times. So I was working with very, very sick patients, acute leukemics. And so people understand these are patients who they might have been feeling a little bit tired. Maybe they had a bruise that never went away. So they went to see their primary care doctor, you know, if they were lucky enough to have a primary care doctor and, okay, well, let's draw some blood, see what's going on. And then they probably got a phone call where someone told them, I think you have leukemia and you need to go to the hospital right now. And then they would be in the hospital for six weeks to two months just a completely life-changing diagnosis in a very immediate way, right? Sort of like the you know medical version of being in a car crash or something. So it was very intense. And then a lot of those patients we would do bone marrow transplants on, and that was very intense. And, and people should understand none of these therapies are even close to being 100%. Like, it's not like, oh, we set your broken leg and your your leg is going to be good to go and then you're going to be back to normal. These are, are tough diseases and the treatments don't always work for everyone. And then sometimes the treatments cause problems that can become really serious. So it's very hard work in that sense. People do die, but I found it so enriching because it really brought me into the cycle of life and there was just kind of a Zen to it about what can I do here for 12 hours to make these people's lives better, to try and help them heal and then leave? And I worked with really amazing, hardworking nurses. And that, of course, was wonderful. So it was very tough emotionally, very interesting intellectually, but also very much gave a lot back to me. And then I, I left those jobs to do home hospice and I always say what's good about the job and what's hard about the job are separated by like a hair's width in hospice. But I love that work even more 
because of that, the difficulty and the richness of it are so bound together. It's funny that when I first went into hospice, people said, oh, that just sounds so sad. Everyone dies. And (laughs) I said, well, you kind of know that going, like they tell you, like you kind of know that's what's going to happen. Not not a surprise. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Right. (laughs) Well, so obviously you enjoyed it, but at any point, did you consider like another avenue? Did you ever, did it ever strike you? You're like, I got to go to med surge. Like I got to get out of this. Or is it something that the entire time you felt you were in your element when you were in hospice and oncology? I did. I, I, at one point kind of seriously flirted with ICU just for a change. And then one of the ICUs in our hospital was just supposed to be a really great place to work. And so that appealed to me, but ended up different reasons not working out. And I was just as glad actually. So yeah, I really liked it. Although, you know, as we know, this is the great thing about nursing. You can do all kinds of different things. So I I am thinking about that now because I loved pediatrics. I did that for my senior clinical, but the eight, it was just my kids were young and the overlap between work and life felt too intense. But, you know, now I would love to be taking care of little kids. I love little kids. So could I do that? Or there's such a need for psych nurses now. And that's sort of my orientation. Like, would I want to do that? Like, do I want to just do something completely different or go back to hospice? If there are new nurses listening, I just want to tell you, you have so many options. Like if you hate the hospital, go work somewhere else. You know, if you started out in home care and you feel like, I don't want to do this. I want to work in the hospital. Then go work in the hospital. Do public health. It's so many options. Once you start to look into it, it's amazing. I was just laughing internally, though, because, you know, you just talked about your New York Times bestselling author. You just went to a book event in St. Louis. And in my head, my first thought was, well, how do you plan on getting days off? Like, they're not going to give you any days off. Like, how are you going to do all that? Like, that's you're wishing the impossible dream, I think. But no, I feel if you're like, do you know who I am? And the nurse manager be like, oh, yeah, I forgot. You can go. But I, I also think it's really interesting. You've achieved so much. And yet. You're like, oh, I want to go back. And I think that's also part of nursing. I, I think that is as much as there's days I'm like, oh, I hate this. I'm leaving. I'm, I haven't. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm still here, you know, but it is always a, I, I find that to be a common theme. You know, everyone's an individual, but I think nursing attracts a certain person and uh-huh. we will complain and we will bitch and moan, but we will stay. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an interesting facet of our profession. Yeah. There's a funny story though about the days off thing. Cause I hear you. So this was several years ago after the affordable care act passed, I got this email late at night. Any chance you could come to the white house tomorrow? The white house, seen- like where the president lives. Yeah. Right. That one. Okay. <laughs> With president Obama <laughs> president is addressing a group of nurses And I had written a column for the New York Times about a man who was one of our patients who got his first admission for leukemia, stayed for three months and ended up dying in the hospital, which was really sad. And I really, really liked him, but he also didn't have good insurance. So while he, when he felt like it, he was constantly making phone calls to try and get his healthcare paid for. So I wrote about this and could we all please agree that while you're fighting for your life, you should not have to be worrying about paying your bills. 100%. Um, But so I get this email. Yeah. Any chance you'd come to, yes, the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. And my first thought was, well, no, I'm working tomorrow. And (laughs) (laughs) and I told my husband, he said, you are not going to work tomorrow. Thank you for your husband. Yeah. And you yes. Things that you're like, you know, I think this is uh, an appropriate reason to miss work. But for the president. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I can't say that I've ever gotten an invitation to the White House, but there has been a couple, like I'll say two times in my life. I actually went into the nurse manager and I was like, look, I don't know that this is going to happen, but if it does, I won't be here. So you might want to plan ahead. Like I'm not like this is a thing that would have probably been, you know, number three. And I'm like, hey, by the way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The president saw my article in the New York Times. I just thought I'd bother you for a second. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
So, Teresa, getting uh, back to your new book, Healing When a Nurse Becomes a Patient, obviously, with that title, clearly you, you have experienced it on the patient side now, correct? Yes. Yes. So, fall of 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember it so well because my twin daughters had just started college here in Pittsburgh. So, it was supposed to be a moment where I was going to be really thinking about, okay, all the kids are out of the house. Do I want to spend more time writing? Do I want to do clinical work more intensely? And then I became a cancer patient. So that became my job. And I was so surprised once I was diagnosed that we really are not that nice to patients. You know, the system, not individuals, but the system, and you guys know this, is not about being compassionate, is not about thinking about what it's like to fear for your life. And I thought I knew that because I'd taken care of these incredibly sick leukemia patients. I'd seen them go through these terrible treatments. And I had a a small tumor found on ultrasound. It was a follow-up, slow growing, tubular shape, just the right hormone markers, you know, in in terms of if you're going to get breast cancer, this is what you want to get, right? I mean, nobody wants that, but you you get what I'm saying. The only reason I like to spell all that out is because I was still absolutely convinced that I was going to die. And no one ever said to me, no, you're not going to die from this cancer, except for the ultrasound tech who, when I was sobbing after it was found, came back into the room and hugged me and said, they can cure this. And otherwise, I felt like I was on this assembly line where, okay, well, you know, we'll do a lumpectomy and then, oh, are you going to need chemo or not? Hmm, guess we need to decide that. And all right, now here's radiation. And certain people came through And also radiation oncology, that department was amazing. But the general feeling was there was so little awareness of how I felt, what I was afraid of, and even of helping me understand what my diagnosis was. And I say in healing, all I wanted was for someone to sit down, look me in the eye, say, here's your diagnosis, here's your prognosis. And that never happened. See, and that's interesting because I work family practice. So as a family practice standpoint, I have told patients, hey, this is very likely cancer or we we have concerns that this may be cancerous. But from a family practice standpoint, then we send them to oncology and we don't ever give them that prognosis because from a family practice standpoint, we don't necessarily know that. So it's just interesting to hear that I guess in my mind, I think that that happens as a nurse practitioner sending my patient out. But then to hear from patients that it's not, is just, it's concerning. Tom, how's that echo working out for you, man? It is doing fantastic. As a matter of fact, I got a couple new believers in it the other day. I let them just listen to it. And honestly, that's how fantastic this piece of equipment is. It sells itself. I can just hand it to somebody, say, turn it on and take a listen. And if you use a stethoscope, you will immediately understand the difference. Yeah. And I got actually got a text message this weekend from a nurse practitioner who sent me the message and saying, hey, I just bought an Echo and I used your code. That is just the coolest thing to me in the world that they're still using our code. You get that 40-time amplification. You get the noise cancellation. You get the Bluetooth. You get the app. You get everything. And it is. It is truly a game-changing piece of equipment. I'm excited to hear back from her once she actually gets it and gets to put it into her practice. So if you want to join her, I mean, I guess you could text me. I'm not going to put my number out. But I mean, you know, if you haven't, you can text me. But if... You could email us. Yeah, you could email us. Uh, But if you want to join her and getting one of the Echoes, you can go to echohealth.com. It's ekohealth.com. And if you put in code JSP, it's $50 off your order. What that does is that lets them know that we sent you and they're cutting you a break because you're one of our listeners. So, echohealth.com. 
Ben, have you been sore recently? Well, Tom, I'm getting older, and uh, yeah, there's uh, more things that tend to be sore, such as, you know, knees, shoulders, um, heads, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. It's all sore. (laughs) Well, you know, Ben, one of the things that helps me out with my joints, aches, and pains is any of the products I've used so far from CBD Stat. I agree with you. I really, truly enjoy their products. I use that muscle roll-on quite a bit. I've used some of the calming cream as well. And then I use the drops to help me get a good night's sleep. Really great products. They're THC-free. They're made right here in the United States. And they're super concentrated, strong products. Yeah, that they're up to 5,000 milligrams per dose, which is way higher than anybody else. Fantastic products. They never leave like a residue or sticky feeling. You know, I can put it on. I feel great the rest of the day. Or... I put it on before I go to bed, I lay in bed, I'm not hurting, and I get a good night's sleep. So either way, I really think if you are interested in not having any pain as well, you should check out CBD products at cbdstat.care. Yeah, and if you're in healthcare, they love their healthcare people, they're going to give you a permanent 40% discount. If you go to cbdstat.healthcare, fill out that form, once they approve you, you get a permanent 40% discount. But they also know that some of our listeners, they're not in healthcare, and they're okay with that too. If you go to cbdstat.care and you put in code JSP20 at checkout, you're going to get 20% off just because you listen to our show. cbdstat.care. Much in the same vein as, you know, we get the test results or, hey, they found something, we ordered the additional testing and it comes back. You know, radiology is much the same. Like, they don't want to commit. They're like, uh, this really needs, you know, clinically correlated. You know, they throw out all the <laughs> jargon. And I'm like, oh, boy. So, and I, and honestly, Ben's the one that gave me this advice, and I still adhere to it to stay. Once you tell the word cancer to somebody, I don't really talk about anything else. Because they're not going to hear anything else. Like, right. and, and that is 100% true. And I'm so glad he said it. I hope I would have figured it out eventually. But, you know. Luckily, I'm not that hard-headed. I can follow advice sometimes. But one of the things that you said that kind of rang for me, and I, I hope maybe some people can hear this and understand, honestly, part of the reason I never went too much further is because I didn't know. So that was one. I didn't want to give you any false education. But two, honestly, to a point, it was to protect myself. I did not want to tell, let's say right. to you, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be totally treatable. And then find out it's not right because it was then now I'm up for civil litigation. Am I going to get in trouble? And it's sad that legal issues are what prevented me from being a better human being, but they were. And now with what's going on with nurses, with criminal investigations, oh my God, it's about to get so much worse. I feel. And so I really feel I just recently lost a dear friend of mine to cancer. And now I'm talking to a cancer survivor and I'm so glad you're here. But I think, sometimes people that are on the outside that have never worked as an oncology nurse, they think it's, oh, they're just being cold. No, I'm literally trying to protect myself so that I can take care of the next cancer patient. It has nothing to do with, I don't want to support you. It's that if I do, I leave myself vulnerable. And I don't know as a practitioner, especially those in oncology, where is that line? Like, where can I say we're going to do this versus not? And I don't think that absolves somebody of being a good human being, but it certainly is a voice in my head. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can only talk about so much. And I just don't know how often that affects people like that. And I feel terrible that you know what's coming and you still felt that way. Yeah, that is something I had not thought about. That's actually very helpful because I can see that. Hear that, Ben? The really smart lady just said I said something helpful. Mark this down, Tom. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I I just wrote an op-ed for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, similar issue that in movies and television, which, okay, yes, I know that's not real life, but (laughs) whenever someone gets a cancer diagnosis, you know, they have this solemn meeting in the doctor's office where they they get told what's going on and sometimes they get angry and sometimes they zone out because after they hear the word cancer, they don't hear anything else. But there's always this meeting, right? Yeah, with lots of doctors and it's a right, conference right, room. Right. Yeah, yeah, always. Um, and it just, it doesn't happen. And it's not that I 
wanted that meeting. I don't think I would have liked that. Some, someone, just someone recognizing how terrified I was and that I needed some kind of reassurance uh, that would have made such a difference. And, and I can see that. And I think being a provider and having been a nurse, that's the beauty of the nurse is that I would have felt comfortable to come and hold your hand and say, look, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know what we're going to do and kind of help as a provider. I don't feel like I am allowed to have that level of outreach anymore to an extent. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say not at all. I'm going to say, but there becomes a wall where when I say this, the patient's going to take this as this is, is this part of my treatment, et cetera. And I just, I feel a little less secure on what I say as a provider than I did as a nurse. As a nurse, I was like, let's jump into this. I'll jump off this cliff with you. Like, let's go. But as a provider, I need to separate myself from the situation, which is, which also isn't as terrible as it sounds. You need some distance. Right. But that distance prevents to me some of the humanity I wish I could express. And so I think that that becomes a wall in the emotional side of treatment that I don't think a lot of people factor in. At least that's for me. That, yeah. And in, in healing, I talk about that because the book alternates between stories of my diagnosis and treatment and then me reflecting on times when I was a nurse. And th the whole idea is to show what was going through my mind. And this is how I was thinking about things. I wasn't having kind of a linear sense of a progression of treatment. And I even say in the disclaimer of the book, there's things I remember very well about my treatment. There's things I don't remember at all. So I felt like all my thoughts and feelings were kind of just jumping all around from thing to thing. So the, the book is trying to capture that. But I acknowledge, yeah, you, there have to be walls. You can't come to work with leukemia patients or, you know, patients with CHF or diabetes or asthma, you know, the kind of patients it sounds like you might be taking care of in a more primary care setting, which I think is what you're saying. You can't feel 110% for all those people every single day or you'll burn out in six months, right? But some more human element needs to find its way in there. And that's the challenge. I agree with you. I mean, we have to balance that provider nurse role with, like Thomas said, you continuing to be a good human. So it, uh, yeah, I wish I had a great answer to say, well, this is how we do that. But I, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And then putting on top of that, which I also talk about in healing this system that just keeps saying more with less, more with less, yeah. more yeah. with less. And, you know, trying to squeeze every last dime out of everyone working for them and then also the patients and, and then neglecting or, or not giving as good care to people who don't have insurance or can't afford it or because they're black or, yeah. So that makes everything harder. So as a patient, and this question just popped in my head, sorry, talking treatment options and things like that, as far as like radiation, chemotherapy, things of that nature, how informed was your informed consent? Because I guess in my head, I picture like they're going to say, okay, well, this is, you know, I got a 70% chance of work and this has got a 30%, whatever the case may be, is it like that? Or is it just like, well, here's some options and we'll see what happens? It was more like the second. Again, well, it's that's a little bit unfair because my surgeon was actually very informative about here are all the statistics for your kind of cancer. Here's recurrence risk. And I had genetic testing and I was negative for everything, but there's a lot of cancer on my mother's side of the family and my maternal grandmother and three of my mom's sisters all had breast cancer. So that put me in a high risk group. So then we had to talk about, you know, your high risk. If you have these certain mutations, then you really want to think about a double mastectomy, but he wasn't even putting in terms of, you really want to think about this. It was more like there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this. So 
I really appreciated that at the time and afterwards. You know, he was giving me information and wanted me to make the decision that felt right for me. And to me, it was appropriate for him to do that in that context. But you guys have probably heard these stories too of people who say they go to a doctor now and the doctor says, well, what do you want me to do? This kind of abdication. It's like there's paternalism or there's a complete abdication of responsibility. And my surgeon definitely, he did it in his own quirky way, but he found that sweet spot of educating me and letting me choose. No, I I have heard that, but I tend to be with my patients again, different scenario, different illnesses. I tend to be like, here's option A, here's option B, here's option C, here's why I think A is better than B and C. But I also present options for a different reason. I found that my patients are much more compliant when they are involved in their plan of care. And I want them to ask questions that, and sometimes they ask questions I had not thought of. So that's also a bonus. So I like to give options, not because I'm trying to give away responsibility, but trying to get them to have buy-in on their care. And if they really don't want to do A and B, but they really want to try option C, well, I wouldn't give them the option if I didn't think it would work. So I might, you know, I'm like, well, I wouldn't give you a bad option, you know, so let's try C. So that's why I do it. I can't say for other professionals, but I, I do understand what you're saying. And sometimes to the patient, I'm sure it comes across as, oh, he doesn't want to make a decision. No, I want you to work with me to make a decision together. But having said all that, knowing what you knew as an oncology nurse, knowing what your diagnosis was when they eventually told you, do you think that information made your treatment better or worse? Would you rather have not known what was coming or are you glad you understood what the process was? Oh, I was definitely glad to understand. Yeah, that's the kind of person I am. And the weird thing though was as once I was diagnosed, I forgot everything I'd ever learned about breast cancer. And I didn't take care of a lot of breast cancer patients, but you know, the basics like staging and, you know, nodes and what's hormone receptor positive and all that stuff. I just couldn't remember any of it. And fortunately I have a good friend who's a breast surgeon and he was helpful and a friend who's a nurse practitioner in oncology and she was really helpful. But that was bizarre. And even now, sometimes I have trouble remembering that stuff if I'm thinking about it in terms of my own cancer. So I think that's the other thing. A lot of people think, oh, you were a professional. You knew what was going on. Yeah. No, because I didn't take care of those patients. I couldn't remember things. And also then my big takeaway from my own work in oncology was people die of cancer. Cancer kills people. And I actually had to do a mental reset. And I, I remember when I figured this out, like, oh, this is a stage one breast cancer. That is not acute leukemia. That is not the women with metastatic breast cancer that I took care of on hospice. This is so different from that. But it was a hard bit of work to get that about face and suddenly see I was dealing with something very different as a patient myself than I had confronted as a nurse. You know, I think it's something good for people to remember, whether it be on the nursing side or provider side or where the case may be. You know, we take care of other healthcare professionals and we give them diagnosis, but while they may deal with those diagnoses on a professional basis, it's a whole lot different when it's personal and when it's with them. And so we can't just automatically assume, oh, well, they're going to know what treatment options A, B, and C, or whatever the case may be is, because they've never had to deal with it as directly involving them as opposed to them taking care of the patient. And that's, I think that's a great reminder that we need to have. I snickered for a second, not because I was laughing at you, just because I was like, oh no, that's exactly me. If it doesn't matter what the scenario is, if you're like, Tom, you were in a car wreck. You used to be a trauma nurse. You know what's going to happen. I'd be like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like my brain would just click. Nope. When it's me, I have no idea what's about to happen. And I think that's a very human thing. And I think people assume a bunch, but I'm like, no, when you're the patient, the world is a different spot. And that's why I think it's so fantastic to have you on the show today because you've seen it, you've treated it, 
and now you've been the patient. I mean, that's a whole new world to look at. Oh, thank you. And when I got the idea of writing the book like this, I knew I wanted to write about my experience, but figuring out the the shape of it was challenging. But I thought, oh, there's going to be a lot of books written by providers of different kinds who became patients. And there actually aren't. I mean, even uh, When Breath Becomes Air, which came out a few years ago, Paul Kalanithi, who was diagnosed with lung cancer and ended up dying, which was very sad and wrote this, this book about that experience. But I feel like in a way, I mean, he wrote a lot about confronting his own mortality and death, but throughout, he really still, to me, felt like a doctor. Like when he was able to work, he would work. That was really important to him. He didn't ever really relinquish that, I felt like, and, you know, just be the patient. I'm using just there advisedly. And that kind of makes me realize too, it's hard. It's hard to give up that control, right? And I say that, you know, none of us wants to be the one in the bed who doesn't know what's going on, who feels powerless. It's so uncomfortable when you're used to that not being you. With your experience, with your books, as we're getting ready to wrap up the interview and get into our last segment of five questions, do you have any final words for those of us on the healthcare side taking care of patients that maybe have been in those shoes that you've walked in? Yeah, to say, I know this is a really hard time to be in healthcare and paradoxically, what I'm trying to remind all clinicians I talk to right now is that you have to take care of yourselves. And we hear that, but I really want people to take that to heart you know, working in a system that says you can do more with less. After a while, less is just less. There's no less to do anything with. And I've also been telling people this quotation I heard from a psychiatrist who was helping doctors who were having mental health issues treating COVID patients. She said, you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep another person warm. And that is so brilliant to me because don't you feel like everyone in healthcare, we're just like, I've got the match. I'm ready. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That. Yes. Wow. Uh, yeah. I um, say, not only are both of us in healthcare, both of our wives are in healthcare. So like I said, I literally, there, there's no part of my day that does not go by. And again, that that's something I think both Ben and I willingly accept. Like that right. was what we do. But if I, as much as I enjoy it, I love it. I will likely be doing this the rest of my life. And, you know, unless I become a world famous New York Times bestselling author, then I would quit. <laughs> you know, short of something like that, uh, I know it's not going anywhere. And so trying to find this balance of there's a me and then there's Tom, the nurse practitioner. I honestly, I don't know where it is. Like there's, it's a floating scale. And some days I'm more me and some days I'm not. And I think Ben and I both, are glad we have guests like you that come on and say it because we say it all the time. You got to take care of yourself. So I'm glad that you're saying it as well. So hopefully people that are like, well, I've heard Tom say it. I've heard Ben say it, but now I've heard her say it. And you know, well, the three of them can't be wrong. Hopefully we right. as healthcare professionals actually start taking care of ourselves too. And I think it's way, way undersold. Like we really need to. Yes. And that that's not just quote unquote self-care. That also means not feeling like you have to work through lunch and not get paid for that time. It also means if the floor calls you because they're short and you just feel like I cannot do that today, I cannot go in or I don't want to, it's okay to say no. If more of us value ourselves, I see it as a way of forcing the system to also value us. That's my hope. Yeah. And People feeling bad about taking PTO still blows my mind. Like, no, it's your time off. I don't care why you want it. I don't, I'm not asking you for a reason. You should just take it. And right. that should become a normal thing. Cause I literally just re read an article. Sorry, Ben, we'll get into it here. But I just read an article about people having horror stories about being questioned or rejected for PTO. 
And it was supposed to be an open article, right? People writing their experiences. I guarantee you 19 of the 20 stories were healthcare. Wow. And and they, they said nurse. They said nurse, my manager on the floor giving an IV. Like they didn't specifically say nurse, but I was like, that's a nurse. Like that is, unless somebody else is starting an IV and putting someone else into a, a bed bath, I don't know who else you know would be doing these things. So it it was, and I literally read that yesterday. And wow. I just I just kept yelling in my head, like, this is bullshit. Like, if they want the day off, there shouldn't be a question why they want the day off. Give them the day off. So anyways, I am so glad to hear you say that. And it is really refreshing. Is there anything else you want our listeners to hear or think about? Or where can they find your books? Tell us all this, the information about where we can do stuff to find you at before we start this last segment. Uh, yes, I can do all that. So I have a website, Teresa Brown rn.com. It's Teresa with an H, T-H-E-R-E-S-A, Brown, rn.com. You can find the book anywhere books are sold. If you want a signed copy, you can order healing from my local independent bookstore, which is called City of Asylum Bookstore. And um, they ship everywhere and they let me know and then I come in and sign the book. So that's fun for me and maybe fun for you. And I'm on Twitter at Teresa Brown. I'm on Instagram at Teresa Brown RN 2021. And I'm really glad I got to talk about all this stuff with you guys. Awesome. And we will make sure that we get all those links in the show notes so that they can okay. we can all that and, and get to your website and book and everything else. So. But we can't let you go without doing our last thing we did with all of our guests. And we kind of gave Excellent. you a little heads up beforehand. So we're going to jump into five questions. Join us on a journey into the inner psyche of our guest as we ask five, 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 five questions. Basically, what happens is I ask the questions and Tom kind of picks apart and makes fun of your answers a little bit. So. <laughs> All right, Tracy. Question one. What is your favorite medical word? Oh. <laughs> Wait, I know what it is, and now it's gone out of my head. As a patient who had this diagnosis, darn it. Okay, I'm going to settle. I can't remember. How about sigmoidoscopy? <laughs> All right. Not the, uh, not the entrance I thought you were going to make into this, but... Um... See what I did there? Okay. <laughs> also, I do traditionally make fun of everyone's answers, but we just asked a person with a PhD in English literature to say a word. I'm not. That's it. That's it's, the end of that. So, yeah, I'm not making fun of anything she has to say about words. So there you go. I know when to fight and when not to fight. I don't get into a ring with Mike Tyson. So let's go to question two. That's a great <laughs> word. Thank you, ma'am. So. <laughs> Maybe not on a plane with Mike Tyson either. Uh, question, <laughs> yeah. question two. If you could do any job in the world other than what you currently do, what would it be? Wow. Yeah, we're thinkers here, ma'am. So, Can this just be a total fun fantasy answer? It's, it's whatever you want. Absolutely. Yeah, it's your answer. Okay, I want to be a backup singer in a band, and I want to play the tambourine. While I'm doing it, I like this answer. Okay, wait, wait, what kind of music is there? Though? That's yeah, any kind of rock, something indie, not metal. That gives me a headache. But <laughs> yeah, you know, any group where they need some backup singers. It's going to be me and my tambourine and my thigh high boots. You know, so I. Don't be mad. I guess my first thought was Fleetwood Mac. I was like, oh, she's got Fleetwood Mac written all over her right here. That's. I, I'm not going to be. Nope. I'm happy. Any band that wants me, I'm going to be there. <laughs> no. I. So first of all, I think that's a great because somebody asked me before. I said, I think a backup quarterback in the NFL is the best job in the world. You have the best seat. You have the chance to play. You make a really good living, but you're not getting smashed up by 300 pound linemen all day long. I mean, can you really think of a. Now, the competitive side of me is like, I'd want to be the starting, you know, I'd want to be the singer, but man, the realistic is like, the backup is perfect. I think that's the best answer I've ever heard to another job. Oh, well, thank so, you. Question three. Now think it goes downhill. <laughs> think back to your first car. Was it a stylish ride or a rolling turd? Oh. <laughs> 
I can't. I, I think can't. I have to go with B. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So what was the car? Oh, what was it? My dad bought this. It was actually even a brown car. Oh, <laughs> see, even yeah. better. Like a Chevy Malibu Classic. Was that a oh, car? Yes. And that's a great car. What? A Chevy Malibu. Yeah. Uh, well, it must have been some version that was not. It was what year? This- what year? That, that oh, doesn't make a difference. 80. Yeah. That's okay. That's why it's different. 80s is when it starts to not be as cool. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, it was just not a good car, and it was <laughs> not a good car. <laughs> it was yes. the, the appropriate brown color. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, we have a wordsmith on the show for one of the only times. I mean, we've had a couple other, but I when you said rolling turd, her face, I was like, she either really hates that car or she is completely questioning her thoughts of coming on this show right now. And when she said, and when she said B, Ben, I was like, I know which one it is. (laughs) So yeah, but no, I think that's a great. Okay. So did it have any quirks that you still remember and love? Did it have like non-power windows and you remember having to roll down the windows or did one of them stick? What was the one thing you love about that car? Oh, well, it had air conditioning. And before that, we had never had a car with air conditioning. That is a bonus. Yeah. That was quite the ride. And I I grew up in southern Missouri where it is hot in the summer. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I found that the people that have the cars that they say they didn't like, they have that one redeeming attribute. They're like, oh, but this one thing was great about that car. So I, I knew it was in there somewhere. I just wanted to get here what it was. So, you know, if you can be in a rolling turd, but you're cool and not sweaty, that's <laughs> yeah. a little better. Yeah. <laughs> that is a win all the way around. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, looks like crap. I don't have to feel like crap. That's there. Yeah, see? see, there you go. <laughs> see? Question four. If your house is on fire, everyone, including your pets, are safe. Other than pictures. What's the one thing you want to get out of your house? You know what? I don't even have to think about this, and I hate it that this is my answer, but it's my laptop. Oh, no. Okay. That's a good answer. We we had so many people say pictures, we actually had to outlaw the answer. <laughs> See? Yeah. Yeah. No. Ben would ask that question immediately. Every person's like, well, I guess pictures. And I'm like... But a laptop is so practical. Like that is a really good, your phone or your laptop. So is your whole life on your laptop or you just don't want the inconvenience of having to deal with with going to the cloud and getting a new one? I think to me, it's so much connected with my writing. It feels like a part of my brain almost. And... That's and it's not like I have a laptop that's 20 years old because I can't stand the thought of getting rid of, you know. But so it's definitely replaceable. But I I, I haven't a I have a professional and creative attachment to it. Was it 25 no, years that, ago? That makes a, like a typewriter. So yeah, like you know, you have that. Yeah. Oh right, yeah. yeah like you have that. Yeah, no, that that makes an emotional. That's connection. a good answer. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. All right. You're, well, and my pictures. Did I mention that? Oh, no. You, can't. <laughs> you just back your pictures up on that laptop, ma'am. Okay. We're not. Yeah. No. All right. Question five. Final question. You have $9.18 in your pocket. You're at a gas station or a convenience store. What all do you buy? Wow. That's a lot for a convenience store. It'll go by quick, I promise. Let me see. Maybe a Snickers bar. I like those. How about some seltzer? Because I'm thirsty. Oh, hold on. What kind of seltzer? Are you doing like the old school New York style seltzer, like the little bottles, or is there something else you're going for? Okay. At the risk of sounding very bougie, I I do like Perrier and San Pellegrino. Very bougie, but we'll... Okay. okay. (laughs) I was like, I almost called it. I almost said, oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Like, just say it. But okay. So we're talking. That's about what? What do you think, Ben? Six, six bucks, five fifty. Yeah, we'll we'll go five, five fifty. Okay. So you got about four bucks. Five fifty. Yeah, you got four bucks. Okay. um, 
So maybe if they have bananas sitting out, which our convenience store does, I'd get a banana. Okay. Yeah, that's about a dollar. So how about some ice cream? Okay. What flavor? But yeah, what are you going to get? Hmm. Maybe Hagen does chocolate, chocolate chip. <sighs> okay. So that's about like two ninety nine. That's right. That's right in there. So we got a Snickers. We got bubble water. Bougie. We got a banana. And we got some ice cream. I got to be honest. That's a really all, all over the place answer. Like when she first said the first two, I was like, oh, she's going to go. And I need some new shoelaces because I jog a marathon a day or something like that. I was like, oh, but then she went the other way. It said Hagen dazs I was like, wait a minute. That's a that's a right turn. I wasn't expecting that one. So and you said chocolate or coffee. I'm sorry. Chocolate, you said chocolate chip. Chocolate, chocolate chip. Oh, because when you need chocolate on top of chocolate, you get. Yeah, exactly. Well, you already got the Snickers and chocolate, so right. you got to – You know, know what? what? So then you have a Snickers chocolate chocolate chip, and see, there you go. But now you also know I have much more of a sweet tooth than a salty tooth. Yeah. No, I'm okay with that. You still got that banana in there, so you don't have to worry about cramping. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> you're well hydrated with the carbonated water. Okay. So I got to ask, though, why seltzer water? No, I just find it really refreshing sometimes. It's like a treat. I've sort of weaned myself off of soda, which now I find just too sweet anyway. And and I read some scary article about what drinking Coke does to your body. And so, but so I just find it really refreshing sometimes just to have a little bubbly water. <laughs> I, I have tried, and I, I don't know. I want to hear what Ben has to say, or we can even discuss this off the air. I don't care, but I have tried the seltzer water. I know. It just makes my throat and stomach angry. It's like, this isn't pop and it's not water. I don't know what this is. I don't <laughs> want it in me. Like, I'm going to burp until it's gone. I don't like it. And so, so I like water. I actually like just regular old water or pop or flavored water. But for some reason, if it's carbonated but it's not pop, my brain just goes, no, this is not appropriate. I don't like it. I don't know what's going on. So... So the real key is I need to try the super bougie stuff. The bougie. What you're saying. Yes. yes that, okay. yeah, my intention was to make this an ad for Perrier. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, Perrier, you win this round because I'm going to go buy a bottle and I'm going to try it. And then I'm going to email Teresa and be like, nope, still burp for 30 minutes and did not enjoy this. So there you go. That's what you get. All right. Well, that was five questions, ma'am. How did you enjoy it? I loved them. I'm going to start asking other people. I cannot wait to hear New York Times bestseller PhD in English says, hey, lady, did you drive a turd? Like I, <laughs> when I hear that, I will know. I'll just be like, I can die happy now. That's it. That's there's nothing left. I've Great. got that. Done. That's so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the space station, but now I got a new goal. There you go. Those are my two. Right, yeah, right but, you know, just to bring it back to the the book and the main Topic. This isn't in the book, but the randomness of these questions, which I actually loved. But the the first surgeon I went to, his PA came into the room and she started asking me about my diet and do I exercise. And I by this point, I'm on the point of tears because we'd had to wait a really long time for the appointment. And I was getting so angry. And I said, Can we just talk about my cancer since that's why I'm here? So just you know, I, th I think to patients a lot of times. Things can just feel so random. It's not an environment where you're wanting to have fun and joke around with people and have them ask you bizarre things. I'll try to remember see, that. The next patient I see, I'm walking in and go, you had $9.18 in your pocket. What all you buy? They're going to be like, I do not enjoy this, man. I was here for my ingrown toenail. But sure, I'll answer your question. So that's what. Well, then you can say, you're diabetic. Why are you eating Haagen-Dazs ice cream in a Snickers uh -oh. bar? Oh, we're going to trick them into it. Yeah, yeah a little right. mind control. Yeah, I, I like, like this. Yeah. Well, Teresa, thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. As we said, we will make sure that we have links down in the show notes to your books. You know, The Shift, which was the New York Times bestseller, and then Healing When a the nurse becomes a patient. So thank you very much again for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks to you guys. And thanks for your patience with my technical difficulties. Oh, no worries. No worries. Okay. Take care. On that note, everybody wash your hands, wear your mask. Have a great week. Hey everybody. Stay safe out there. Just to pass the time. Lately I see why. 
Time.